0: Welcome to the Science and Dance podcast number one. It's really excited to get this going. Um, we've been trying to do a podcast for a long time, and it's really exciting that we can now get this off the ground. Um, I hope you'll be a bit able to listen on various platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, and Anchor. We'll eventually be up uploading to SoundCloud, and some later episodes will have video with them for YouTube as well. Hoping to draw on some really interesting topics over the next few weeks as we. Uh, spit out many episodes in the first month um, of a variety of guests talking everything from dance psychology right the way through to nutrition, right the way through to training methods, and even getting some people on to the podcast who have nothing to do with dance but are from a sports science background to perhaps talk about what the latest technology and the latest research is like in sport and how dance can move forward to, to keep up with sports science, which has been around for a little bit longer. As well as that, we'll be getting dancers on here over the next six months to talk about their experiences in the world of performing arts, whether that's musical theatre, whether that's ballet, or in the world of contemporary dance. We really hope you enjoy this podcast. Um, Let us know what you think. Send us an email with your suggestions of what could feature on our episodes, and we'd be really delighted to hear from you with your feedback as well. Thanks. In episode number one, today we have Terry Hyde with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Terry before he joins us. Terry had a career as a professional dancer performing with the Royal Ballet, London Festival Ballet, which is now English National Ballet, as well as performing in musicals in London's West End in film and on the television. On retiring from performing, Terry set up a business management company for people in show business, which he ran for 15 years, On selling the business, he retrained as a psychotherapist in 2009, obtaining a master's degree in psychotherapy and healing practice, validated by Middlesex University in 2012. In 2017, Terry combined his two passions, dance and psychotherapy, when he created counsellingfordancers.com and his blog. He recognised that there was a serious lack of support for both student and professional dancers with their emotional and mental health issues Having had a career as a dancer, Terry has a great understanding of their needs and how to support them. In addition to his therapy practice, he is now a speaker, guest lecturer, and mental health consultant for performance arts colleges and dance companies worldwide. We also have Connie Jaynes here from um, St. Mary's University. She's a master's student at St. Mary's studying strength and conditioning. Connie's a former international competitive Latin and ballroom dancer to an extremely extremely high level and, and and ranked at one point previously. Connie's um, also got a huge ambition to introduce primary schools to basic movement patterns and get children more involved in strength and conditioning from an early age. And she has a particular interest in working with children with cerebral palsy as well. Um, Ultimately, wants to have her own dance school and incorporate SNC and mental health well-being into her dance dance school. Um, interestingly, she's currently recovering, or has over the past couple of years been recovering from uh, breaking her ankle, um, and we're probably going to touch on that a little bit today in terms of mental health issues related to injury. So this should be a really, really great insight from the horse's mouth, and um, we're going to hear myself, Connie, and Terry chatting about all issues to do with mental health. And dance and performing arts. So, welcome Terry. Welcome Connie. How are you guys doing? You okay? Yes, fine. fantastic Lovely sunny day out there. So, well, thanks for thanks. Really, really great that you could both um, be in on this. Um, basically, talking about from not just a psychotherapist's point of view, and we'll get onto what psychotherapy is in a second, but also from a dancer and a dance teacher's point of view, and a master's s&c students (laughs) point of view as well which is just such a great blend you know people coming from um the world of dance and then segueing nicely into uh, being a health practitioner and so not my avenue but certainly your field of expertise going from one profession to another so terry briefly i've filled the listeners in already on who you are and what you've done but tell about tell us a little bit about your career as a dancer And what age did you start from and where did it go from there
1: I started when I was six years old, went to the local ballet school because my mother uh, was fed up with me jumping around on the furniture and she wanted uh, my energy to be uh, placed elsewhere. So that was the the first bit of ballet. That was uh, age six, age ten. I then um, won a scholarship to the RAD. We then had to do an audition each year. So I got that for five years and then went into the Royal Ballet after school. Um, and then straight into the Royal Ballet Touring section, as it was called then, it's now Birmingham Royal Ballet. Uh, After a couple of years, uh, I thought I want to do something different and someone suggested going to London's Festival Ballet. Some more character work there, and that's what I was doing. So I joined London's Festival Ballet as a soloist. Um, Again, after a few years, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to use my voice. And during a uh, summer holiday break, I saw in the stage an advert for West Side Story, the UK tour. Went along, auditioned, got it, phoned Dane Beryl up, well, she wasn't Dame then, but phoned Beryl Gray up and said, I want to do uh, the show, can you release me from my contract? So I was released, oh, uh, did the tour, and then they phoned me up, uh, Festival Ballet phoned me up and said, we haven't replaced you. Can you do the Christmas season, please? <laughs> so I went back as a guest artist.
0: Fantastic! Never out of work then. Never That's
1: out of work. No, and great. then it went on from there. Did some West End shows. Uh, probably your your listeners uh, are too young to know this, but it was Michael Crawford. I'd like to think we appeal to everybody. Yeah, yeah Go on,
0: give us the de- give us the details, but certainly well, this was nineteen seventy three. So. Oh right.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, so a musical Michael Crawford called Billy. It was the musical version of Billy Liar, I did that for a couple of years. Um, did a rock version of Two Gentlemen of Verona. And there were some trade shows, some television, a Barbara Streisand special I did, Tommy Steele TV special, uh, some adverts. I was the jelly tot in the jelly Tot house. Four four of them, four That, years is, running. that is a claim to fame. I claim. mean that's a claim to claim, That is a huge, yes.
0: huge clanger there. I mean, it doesn't
1: matter about the royal ballet, royal ballet school. I've
0: never heard you should have dropped that in sooner, I <laughs> didn't know that. And then how how have you as you come out at the end of your dance career, what yeah. was it what was it that you did before becoming a psychotherapist and, and your master's degree?
1: Well, um when I came out uh, of the of of, of of performing, um I had a few years in sales management. And I thought, you know, I still had that draw to, to performing arts. Mm. And plus I had a sort of, a, I'd run a business whilst I was in, in, in show business, printed t-shirts, I was, I was doing that.
0: Which is really interesting, actually, because many dancers still have to have a kind of a backstage wage mm. even now.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I think that's really, really interesting. The, mm. A number of clients of mine have said, you know, well, I do a little bit of something else on the side, whether that's an online business doing some ballet lessons online, or whether oh. that's a blog or, or selling something. That's, I mean, you were doing that.
1: Yeah, that, so I started that in 1973. Right. There's nobody doing printed T-shirts, then. Right? and so I was importing my own shirts from Portugal, had my own print works, oh, well. set it all up. So I started off with the Billy T-shirts, and then other West End shows contacted me, uh, to do that and then advertising agents and it sort of built up and built up and built up. So I. So the reason
0: people are flogging me t-shirts after shows is because of you <laughs> essentially. Because of me. I'm
1: sorry about that. It was a company called Show Shirts. Right. That's actually not easy to shame, is it?
0: No, no, not at all. <laughs> and, th- and then in, was it 2009, you started your ma- master's degree? I did,
1: but you skipped 15 was, years. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep yes. going, keep going. <laughs> so the business acumen side of things... I've got a great audience here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the business acumen uh, was was I put into um, a business management organization that I set up. So I was running it by myself, doing the bookkeeping for the, for the clients, et cetera. And this was based for people in show business. So there was the jobbing dancer, the jobbing actor, et cetera, et cetera. But there was the high-profile people. as well that i was doing the full business management for so
0: So you've come in just sorry to cut you off but you've come into contact with many many different people prior to your current vocation and seen what it's like to not only be a dancer Mm -hmm. but also managing the or performing artists but also managing the surrounding efforts and the admin etc that's right so it's, it's really the whole life of you've been on that Uh, Yeah, so I've
1: been been connected to show business for over 50 years now, in one way or another. And so I would look after them. And this is where there isn't a big leap from dance to psychotherapy. This is where, in meetings, they would offload. They would talk about their issues and things like that. So when I sold the business 15 years later, I thought, you know, I really want to learn more about this. And that's when I studied and trained to be a psychotherapist.
0: Fantastic well that that, that, that's such an amazing story I mean and it's a great introduction to our first episode. Mm. I think all of our listeners and potential listeners will, will find that particularly engaging and enthralling as to how the the full spectrum of being a dancer not just yes being ballet trained but diversifying into show business in many different ways and, and and forming yourself a career after dance because that's totally important too. But this
1: is where the ballet training from six years old comes in because you have a work ethic, you have a drive, um, the transferable um, traits or whatever you want to call it, the abilities that, that we have mm. can be transferred into any other career. And this is when I'm mentoring or, or giving advice to- Dancers are incredibly dancers. employable. Yeah. They really are, mm-hmm. and, and and employers are amazed at how hard they work, how quickly they pick things up. That's it, the other thing. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, when,
1: you, when you're doing so the telly, tellies that I did, we had to we had to pick things up. So we had like two or three routines. We had to learn the harmonies, all in one week, and then we'd record it at the fantastic. end of the week.
0: It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that brief story, I guess. Brief? And, I mean, it was, <laughs> no, it was great. I think that's fantastic. And then obviously we've got Connie here as well and um, Connie and I have only met very very recently mm-hmm. but have a um, share a big interest in common in terms of strength and conditioning but Connie could you briefly tell us what what, what what your path in dance has been how you've come to this point now and tell us a little bit more about um, your, your ambitions for the future. Yeah
2: cool so um, I started dancing Latin when I was four years old and um, it I started competing at five, and then mum was trawling around the country with me competing. We ended up in Blackpool from the age of nine every year, um, and we were doing like, formation teams, so that's part of a, a group of dancers, and we'll go out and we'll create formations. Um, and we were doing that ranked every year, top top six every year, um, up until I was 12. That was in the closed circuit. I then went on to the open circuit which is sort of internationally and nationally trained dancers um, and have been having lessons with various people up and down the country. I got an injury two years ago, two and a half years ago, where I broke my ankle and have had to stop dancing for the past two years and Yeah, I'm going back to competing very, very soon. But the reason that I came into strength and conditioning was because when I broke my leg, I wanted to be able to help dancers that have been in my situation, so injured, get back onto the dance, dance and c- competing, or performing again. And I
0: guess that I guess that links nicely to my silver bullet, which is my my overall ambition is to kind of mitigate the risk of dancers getting injured in the first place. Yeah. And that links to where Terry comes in with his psychotherapy and managing the pre post injury. Um, paradigm and continuum if you like and also I think we're going to touch on some personal experience for you and maybe some interesting uh, links between you were a dancer of such high caliber to hurting yourself when you know in, in that situation and then diversifying naturally because you don't want people to yeah. but you're, you're still you're still dancing and you hope still you're, dancing, still gonna, yeah. you're still gonna you're still going to compete as well so yeah, you know you
2: in the kind of works in the studio at the moment trying to get back all of our routines back and our technique
0: back and everything so you to get get, back on the you're gonna keep to get going that. That, that's really really great and um so i really appreciate you jumping on board with us today as well it's it's great and um obviously our, I know it's okay yeah, obviously yeah. obviously our headline act is terry but um it is our first episode but terry i've got some really uh, questions for you that haven't just come from me but also from uh, members of staff who i work with who would like We've got some questions further down the line as well. And I know we've got some pretty poignant topics to talk about kind of in the next 50 minutes. Um, But recently, you've done some work with Biscuit Ballerina. And obviously, people that I work with love Biscuit Ballerina for a multitude of reasons. A, because she's super funny. Mm. B, because I think she has a voice that is unique in the world. She's heavily supported on Instagram. And Instagram for me, is a uh, factor in people's well-being uh, whether we like it or not, social media is part of our lives and when it's not going anywhere quickly so unless you want to reject it completely, you may as well get on board with it and I certainly use it for marketing materials and putting it for good try to put good information out there. But Biscuit ballerina really is trying to wholly make people more comfortable with themselves as as dancers if if I'm not misunderstanding. Tell us a little bit about what your experience and what you Talked about with 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 her and um, her work. Okay,
1: Shelby Williams is her name. Um, Shelby and I uh, conversed over how we can work together, how we can collaborate to bring across what she wanted. So she, I think she's got fourteen thousand or something like that. or oh, even more. Now.
0: She's got one hundred twenty thousand followers on Instagram <laughs> now. Yeah, it's huge.
1: Yes compared to my 50, no, 2000, I think, just under. uh, She's an American dancer that works in, I think it's Antwerp. I can't remember but it's somewhere like that. Brussels, I think it's Brussels. Um, And what she is trying to do is to bring humour into dance, so don't take yourself so seriously. And then then we got on to talking about the mental health aspect And she said, okay, well, let's – can you write me some articles? I did that, and they had a good response. So what she did – where are we now, April? Mm. What she did, I think, in January was to put out, um, what do you want to ask Terry? So she had an incredible response from that. From that, she pulled 10 questions out, because a lot of them were sort of very similar, 10 questions. And I've been doing – Two articles a month and she's been then doing articles for my blog. Fantastic. As well. And the response for that is good. You know, the the, the comments, we need this, great to hear about it, you know, that sort
2: of thing.
0: Yeah, and no, a voice for people wanting to talk about mental mm. health is yes. is essentially the same reason that you're here today, you know, the Science and dance has got a reputation for being about strength and conditioning, but on a day to day basis, people that work with science and dance or for science and dance manage the well being of people. And we talk about many of the psychosocial issues that can occur for a dancer, and often they feed into the physical. So, in terms of your chat with Biscuit Ballerina and the questions that you've been asked over the past kind of number of years that you've been doing your services, within psychotherapy is first of all what is psychotherapy exactly and second of all what is the most common thing that you are asked in terms of a topic whether it's performance anxiety or whether it's um, coping strategies on a day-to-day basis what are the common things that you get asked about but first of all what is psychotherapy?
1: Um, Psychotherapy is looking at the way people react to either themselves or their life around them, their situation. But it's looking at the unconscious. So we, we act as adults, as if you're an adult, uh, but we react as children because it's whatever has been recorded in the unconscious right the way through, even in utero, because it's dependent when the mother is expecting what's happening to her then. It, goes, it gets transferred through to um, the baby. Um, so dependent on their environment, when they're growing up, how they're treated, how they're dealt with, whether they're supported, loved, whether they're abused, um, how they react to teachers, etc, all of that is built in to the, into the unconscious, and um, I deal with dreams as well as, as part of uh, the, the therapy sessions. So when I get the, the patient or client to um, write down it with dreams, bring it to therapy um counseling is slightly different it's not as deep so it's looking at the symptoms that are coming along and just looking sort of un- underneath and not going too deep so you might only get sort of six sessions or ten sessions But psychotherapy is, it takes a bit longer but you're actually getting rid of and dealing with um the Past
0: underlying the
1: underlying factors. Okay, right. so so those so, triggering off.
0: So triggers. you would describe things like cognitive behavioral therapy to be symptom management. That's,
1: that's right. Um,
0: yes. And then psychotherapy to be more. Let's go to the root of, of yes. what's going on here. That's okay. Right. So yes. I think that's really important for for our listeners is is understanding what health practitioner can do what for them. And and we have the set a similar but not in the same um topic within sports science i guess we have yeah. physiotherapists that are brilliant at the diagnosis and acute management of injury or pain and then we have sports rehabilitators that might start that pathway towards exercise and, and beyond and then we have strength and conditioning coaches that work to return to sport or return to dance or invariably coach people whilst they're mm. fighting fit so there is certainly um important to know definitions and it's certainly important to know what service might be appropriate at what time.
1: Could I also add, because we were talking before about psychologists. Yes. So there are performance psychologists and sports psychologists that are usually in this type of environment. They don't deal with mental health. Um, The only psychologists that can deal with mental health and are trained for it are counselling psychologists and clinical psychologists. Those are the only two. And clinical psychologists invariably will use um, CBT the same as psychiatrists they will invariably use CBT they don't do the same necessarily as I do. Okay
0: okay so so that's that's it I, I like the fact that we've got some definitions in there. Connie did you know did you I mean I before yet yeah, before Terry's conversation with me earlier I didn't fully understand right. the differences so you know again I, I don't think from a dancer's point of view I don't think that many dancers would necessarily no, off the not. bat know the difference so that's really important thanks Terry and then my other question is kind of a little bit less deep but like but is kind of what's what's the most common thing you get asked about what's the most common topic that comes up for you um, Um, or do you see the most anxiety
1: and then depression um although bereavement has a a class of its own it it sort of rolls into depression and anxiety as well um because I think when from your point of view, when you talk about injuries, hmm. there's what's happened to the mental health of the individual before they had the injury. Was an injury from an accident or was an injury from their mental state that didn't cause them balance? Uh, I don't mean balance as in on point, but you know, physical, lifestyle balance. The whole, the whole balance yeah. of, of everything.
0: I think that's an interesting um, point of study. I mean, I'm not familiar with that. So to speak, necessarily, but it's certainly a train of thought that I've had. Um, We're going to
1: do some research on that. Um, Edinburgh University and I are sort of getting together to start the research. That's about fantastic. three three years. Of
0: That'll be amazing. Research. That'll be so interesting. But I think we have, and certainly in sport and in certain SNC C cognitive distraction
2: mm-hmm.
0: would lead towards something like an ankle sprain. You know, if mm-hmm. you're if you're cognitively fatigued or if you are neuromuscularly fatigued, that might is often a risk factor and a red flag mm-hmm. or a precursor to acute injury certainly um well,
1: cognitive distractions are the same as the mental health
0: ex- exactly We you know we're, t- we're talking about the same thing in in a different slightly different language yeah. and i think yeah. that's important for people to um mm. try and draw lines between what i'm saying as, as mm. a sports practitioner and what you would say mm. as, a, as a um a psychological practitioner and then on top of that when we look at um how people react to injury could that be set or steeped heavily on what's happened in the past so if somebody was to overcome and, and accept an injury and get yeah. over it very very quickly or certainly come to terms with it quickly could that be based upon previous characteristics as well do you think Is in a that, word yes right
1: so if you if you look at extremes if there's two people that see a road accident uh, a horrific road accident two are, and they're watching exactly the same thing one Uh, could possibly get PTSD, and the other one would go through a process quite easily of of shock and then deal with all of that and say in in a month or so's time it would be okay. But the other person, because of the way of their environment in which they grew up, um, there would be like a a gate in, in the brain that stops anything going through to deal with it. And the PTSD is, is uh, the memory flashing through the gate because the the mind is stopping the hurt, the upset from from coming through and being worked through.
0: Mm. I mean I think that's a really good analogy, really good metaf- like imagery there for mm. people to see is almost like this whole process of coming to terms with something has to happen. Mm. Um, the sweat, the sweep it under the carpet, yes. kind of uh, metaphor yes. doesn't really work in your experience. Just putting things to this. no,
1: because it. Um, I use I use a pressure cooker as as the analogy there. <laughs> so the as you're growing up, you know, if if your parents or your carers or grandparents etc say uh, we don't talk, don't talk about that, no, we don't talk about that. Um, pull your socks up. Get on with it. Uh, Etc. So that gets pushed and pushed and pushed, and it building up inside there. So if you think about somebody that suddenly has this explosive anger that they're normally quiet, they're normally quiet, suddenly it, that's built up inside them all that time. This explosive anger. So the, the pressure cooker pops at the top, uh, and that's it over and done with, but then it carries on building because they don't talk about it. If you're not brought up to share things, um, while, while while you're growing up and you're not supported in a loving way then it will build up
0: mm. and these are um, and these are drastically different in terms of the scenarios for dancers in particular mm. um, i often talk to dancers that i work with about how we can quantify success and how we understand whether or not something's gone well so for example in dance sport connie mm. You know if you've done well because you would what would happen you 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 scored aren't you essentially
2: you kind of are I mean you go through rounds and then you get placed one to six so you know you have done well if you get through to your final and you get placed one to six okay and um, the difficulty is is you don't get any feedback so you, if you didn't do well you don't know why you didn't do well so it could be anything to do with technique or the judge just didn't like like you or you didn't perform well. Oh, it's very subje- it's, subjective, it's isn't very it? very subjective, yeah. So you don't really know
0: what... And then in, and then in ballet, we have this whole, well, it's, it's an art form, mm. completely subjective. Again, somebody could just not like the style of dance. and But then also how a dancer feels like they've improved is a really, really interesting topic for me. So how many pirouettes have I done as a classic. How many fouettes can I do? How high do I think my leg's going? How high is it compared to somebody else? And Dancers are constantly trying to quantify... Mm. how good they are compared to somebody else based upon these small insignificant numbers but actually there's a whole artistic performance that you might want to establish that has gone better so if it's for example we've just done Romeo and Juliet and it's a very emotional ballet Um, and saying to somebody look you acted that really well is almost like a. It's difficult to quantify for, for a human being to say, right. well, I acted it better this time than I did last time. It's right. so. Do you think? Do you think dance itself as a performing art lends itself to some more potential issues because of its subjective nature?
1: It is, but also, um, you know, you're talking about the acting side of it. You're actually giving of yourself. You're giving of your own own emotions. You know, what happens after the death scene or something like that? And uh, and they have given all of that emotion out. Is there any support up? So you know they go, oh, that's great. Okay, off we go. You know,
0: I don't think – I can't remember us doing a scene in Romeo and Juliet or a full run through Romeo and Juliet where there was a dry eye. Mm. Like, at some point it would hit somebody watching the periphery and – I know for a fact that those dancers did so well, all of them, because it is a very emotionally taxing. Mm. Right? But imagine, I imagine that for a touring dancer or a performing dancer, if you're part of a company that does quite tragic mm. performances, then that's a bit of an emotional toll as well, having to rehearse things, you know, that are yeah. that are difficult emotionally.
1: In West Side Story, the the end part where um, they pick up the body, mm. invariably, I get an emotional now just talking about. It invariably most of the cast would be in tears um, as, as the body gets carried off. And, you know, we did eight shows a week uh, for a 13-week tour. Wow. And, and so I, I didn't know it then, but you just give so much. And what do you do? You just sit in the dressing room. Most of the time we all sat in silence in the dressing room.
0: Yeah. Afterwards. I mean, I can think back to the sporting days, and I know I was emotionally invested in my sport but sport doesn't have a um, storytelling aspect behind it necessarily. Mm. It's it's not predetermined. You don't know what you're going to get yourself, mm. what's going to happen. So it's difficult to connect emotionally sometimes to certain performances, you know, for any particular reason. But certainly within dance, it's, it's a factor. You know, you're leaving everything on the line mm. on a daily basis um, and giving yourself, as you say, to um, this art form. And that can be take its toll I guess if you start especially if you start at the age of three <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> there, around the dance for a long time
1: yeah no well I think I think I think as you get to um the teens that's probably where if, if you're if you're giving emotions that, that's when it happens yeah, but I think course. you're just doing good toes bad toes of and course <laughs> yeah,
0: what I mean is you it, it, dance has been a part of your life for a long time and yes. it means a lot to you yeah. because of how long how long you've done it for mm. And and I think how different is the mental health talk and chat if you like now compared to say when you first started in psychotherapy have we have has improvements been made where are we at what needs to be done going forward you know because i know you have some workshops you do could you tell us a little bit about those and what your vision is for mental health not just in its reactive kind of way but also in the prevention of these issues.
1: Mm-hmm. Well to answer your the beginning part of the yeah, question of um, there's been no improvement in the establishment, so that's schools, uh, pre-professional colleges, university universities that do dance courses and dance companies. Only a few have actually got um, in-house counsellors, or they refer them to to counsellors, the the colleges uh, and the pre-professional schools that I've contacted um, said, oh, we've got a sports psychologist, or we've got a performance psychologist. As I explained earlier, they don't deal with mental health. And that's where the misunderstanding comes in. So once... um, I I am doing an article about the difference uh, between Mm. each of those... We'll
0: put a link to that in the show notes when it comes out as well. When it
1: comes out, yeah. Um, So that... The colleges and the schools and the companies actually understand what the different people do so that, um, that, that they can then make a decision on that rather than based on um, a psychologist against counselling or psychotherapy. Okay. Um, yes, so the, the workshops are mental health, self-care workshops for dancers, but performing artists as well because I've had um, performing arts colleges get me to come in as well. Yeah. Um, mostly dealing with, for, for the performance Arts College, they wanted me to deal with um, anxiety, how to deal with it. So that was exam, audition, and performance anxiety. Most of those um, workshops actually turned into more self-care, which is what the original ones are, sort of an hour and a half to two hours. And it's to teach, uh, it's interactive, and it's amazing, when I, when I start, and if possible, there's no teachers, so there's no staff in the room, it's just me and the group of students. It starts off with uh, me asking the students about their injuries, as we were talking about earlier. You know, what, what's your injury, how did you do it, did you, who did you go to see, and all that. And they are just all chatting away, and giving feedback as to what they've done. And then I said, okay, what about your mental health? How's your mental health? Trumblebee goes across the room. No one speaks. And I said, is there nobody that has been talking about or has had any therapy? Because there's no teachers here, so you can talk if you want to. One person will start, and then others start talking. Oh, yes, this has happened. And I'm feeling awful. And I think at the beginning of each day, this may take a bit of time because um, the the process of, of, of getting people to talk may be difficult to start with. Also, it's time taken out of class, but each morning, ask how they're getting on. How are they? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling anxious this morning. Oh, my grandfather just died. and mm. oh, I'm feeling really sad about that. Mm. And so the, the find out.
0: Hey there, guys. Just hope you're enjoying the podcast. Remember, this is Science in Dance, and we're interviewing Terry Hyde and Connie Janes.
2: Okay. Yeah.
1: so we just get them to talk uh, about um, either their anxiety what they're feeling today you know one person might come up with oh my grandfather died I'm really upset about that and <clears throat> excuse me so that builds up to them feeling safe to talk about it because in, in the performing arts world, there's, there's obviously the stigma that we're talking about. But there is something about the stigma when you think a performance, whether it's on film or stage or wherever, um, has to look good, has to look glamorous. So people will talk about their injuries and they are limping off stage and go on to it but they won't talk about the mental health. And so yeah. if, if the management, the artistic director, the choreographer is not au fait with, with mental health or has had issues themselves and they don't want to talk about it they don't want to talk anyone else to talk about it, then there's a knock on effect that nothing will get done. So they won't be supportive because they want their company or their school or their college to have nothing to do with mental health because of the stigma what would the audience think if they know that people have got anxiety or et cetera?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, such a, a powerful statement or, the, or answer to the question because, as you say, things come to the forefront when we talk about mental health more slowly than they do when we talk about physical injury. And maybe that's because it's easy to hide your physical injury is not always easy to hide if you've got yeah, a limp you've no got, bandages. If, if you're limping if you're limping on the outside you've mm. uh, you've got a limp on the outside you are got a limp on the inside mm. you don't necessarily know mm. and if i flick back to quickly to connie obviously you've been injured mm. we've just been talking about injury and that stopped you competing at a high level yes. and uh, i know this is fresh information to me but was that tough for you to, to do especially given the circumstances of your injury was yeah, that
2: extremely tough I mean I I broke my ankle ice skating uh, which was a bit of a faux pas on my behalf but yeah um, I was I, I couldn't work for three months I was working in retail at the time so I couldn't work for three months Um, and I was not allowed to put any weight on my leg for eight weeks so two months and you kind of you get to a point sometimes where you'll sit there and you'll watch videos of yourself dancing two months ago and you're wishing that you could be doing it or you're thinking, oh, I need to improve this and I can't physically even walk at the moment. So, yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. Um, and because everyone, your friends, your family, their lives are kind of going on as normal, they kind of forget, actually, that your everyday is sitting in front of the telly doing nothing or sitting there and reading the book that you finish in a day because you've got nine hours that
1: you can't do anything but read the book. So yeah, it's tough. It's very tough. Yeah, mm-hmm. with with that type mm-hmm. of injury, and had a lot of um, clients come to me with with that. Um, you deal. You're dealing with loss. Mm-hmm. So you, it, there's a grieving process. Mm-hmm. Stages of grief have got to go through. And, and and as you said earlier, it depends how you were brought up, whether what support you had, and what sort of programmed in, in, into your head and into your life. And so the there's there's not just the loss, there's a loss of identity. Am I still a dancer? Will I have to change my identity to do something else if, if the injury, it, it's not. Um, there's a loss of your friends. There's a loss of th- that sort of community. Uh, there are so many different losses uh, to deal with. And then there's the insecurity of um, going into something else. So you're not going to be good enough. There's so many uh, entwined factors with it. Is that sort yeah, of ringing a bell with you? absolutely.
2: I think another thing is your loss of independence. Something that struck me is I couldn't get myself a glass of water without someone helping me because you get up crutches to the sink, get your glass of water, but you need both your hands to use your crutches.
0: Things that you would so normally take for to, granted. Yeah, so yeah. how
2: to take your glass of water back so then, So
0: even something that isn't dance related, having a massive impact on on how you feel. And
2: then when you come out of cast, I mean, I I broke it. So I was in cast. And when you come out of cast, we go into a boot. You have to learn to walk again. So your ankle doesn't move the way that it did before. And you can't apply pressure the way that you could before. So you have to learn to walk again. Um, part of and the process so that is, though. That is mm. hard and yeah. I, I, my friend she broke her ankle 10 years before I did and she said to me oh, you will have to learn to walk and I thought oh you're talking rubbish and yeah it and it takes it takes such a long time and then to get that point back the extension my is still not probably still not where I would want it to be
0: and you're dancing in your heels it all, heals the time, all the time. Well, yeah. It's and
2: excellent.
1: would you say that brought on anxiety? Because anxiety is the highest on, on any search
2: thing for mental health now.
0: Yeah. Would
2: that? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And is, is, is that what led you to kind of diversify a little bit into the, the master's degree and the yeah. strength conditioning? But nevertheless, you're, you're looking at this like, I'm going to compete again. Yeah. So yeah. you've got such a, you know, not, luckily and of whatever you've done over the past number of years. You're in a position where you want to compete again. You're going, to you're going. You're going to compete again. There's, there's <laughs> I have this,
2: to compete again. <laughs> this, which is a great, you know, yeah.
0: fantastic attitude to be able to have.
1: Are you missing the tan?
2: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think yeah. people That's do. The do they? Comes
2: with it as well. You know, the tan, the hair, the gel. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're really?
2: not missing any of that. Mm, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so, so, of being orange or patches on your arms no. where it's coming on. Yeah, don't
0: miss that. So, so I mean, again, there's as you say, there's there's a grieving process mm. to be had with these injuries. Um, often, one of our most common injuries, certainly in vocational dance, here is stress-related injuries um, to do with a physical stress, a stress on a bone. Um, stress fracture in the foot, stress fracture in the um, the shin or somewhere lower limb. I mean, dare I say, we've seen not here, but in other areas, um, people have contacted me regarding stress fractures in the lower back, you know, really far up the chain, as far as I'm concerned, often due to too much dancing, um, a repetitive injury. Um, a, that's why we call it a stress-related injury. But I'd, I don't necessarily – I've started to see over the last two years – this stress-related injury isn't just necessarily stress on the bone. This is stress on the system
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um, of the body as a whole in terms of, yes, you're doing repeated impacts and jumping day in, day out um, without inadequate strength or inadequate neuromuscular function. But the neuromuscular function is quite easily, well, is completely determined by a cognitive function. So if the cognitive system is stressed, that is a, a risk factor mm. for these stress-related injuries where we're pushing our body beyond what it's capable of, um, and we're seeing stress-related injuries in very, very young dancers that do a specific genre over and over again. It's
1: because they don't rest. And when, 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 there, when there is a rest day, don't do anything. Don't go off and cross-train just because you're not doing ballet class. Don't do anything. Rest your mind as well. I suggest to clients, to all patients, depending where they're coming from, um, to do mindfulness meditation. And the, I suggest uh, Headspace, but that's, that's quite costly, actually. But you can find stuff on YouTube <clears throat> that's free. It's whatever, whatever uh, the voice, whatever the voice is. That's, that's helpful for... Them.
0: Do you have any experience with that, Connie? Mm. You do? Yeah, yeah, I use Headspace. Yeah. Okay, great.
2: Headspace. Well, there's,
1: great. There's a Headspace user. Yeah. That's, that's really
0: Headspace interesting. really, good. Okay. And I, I think I've I, I mentioned to clients of mine before that there are things that they, they can use. Um, not that it's my area of expertise at all, but nevertheless, health practitioners having awareness of the fact that there are tools out there mm. um, is completely important. And coming back to what you said about rest is a really really interesting topic we're in a culture or have been in a culture dance has been a culture of more is more um, sports science suggests that more isn't always more and there is um certainly when we look at something as specific as jump training for example for a second if i talk about something i know about <laughs> um, we know that in order to make somebody's jump improve we have to go for quality over quantity you cannot repeat jumps on the force plate and expect to jump higher every single effort you there has to be an element of adequate rest we know within sprinting that you have to sprint above 95 percent of your max speed in order to improve sprinting if you practice slower your top speed is not going to improve the best thing to do to improve is to practice whatever you can practice at its best possible quality Mm. but by the time you come to do an allegro exercise for the fifth time on the left or by the time you've done lifts, countless amounts of what's what, what's the, probably the most taxing thing in Latinabourum, because I'm what's the most ta- what's the most taxing dance?
2: Most taxing dance probably maybe a jive.
0: A jive. Okay, yeah, in terms of yeah, okay, in terms of impact as well. Yeah. If you were to just do that jive back to back every time, ah. it would kill you off, yeah, and you, you're probably at risk. And I do think that that's a little bit where class culture, rehearsal culture comes from: is that we are going to do this again, run this again. And there is a there is a point where that is good, but there is a point also where we have to go. Now is the time to stop. And
1: I've got a remedy for that. Go on. I think athletes use it, but dancers can use it as well. It's visualization. So, if a dancer, and I've, I've I've used this on a number of occasions with dancers. Um, when they've been having difficulty uh, getting back from injury, but also when they've been having difficulty with something, they're falling off point or something like that, is to visualise the dance. So they have the music in their head or they can play the music, and their eyes closed, and they're going through the solo or whatever piece they're doing in their head over and over and over again to the standard that they want.
0: Um, Can that be difficult itself? Because yeah,
1: because it's sometimes and you, you, and that's a good point because when I was going through it in in a session, she said, oh, "I keep I keep going wrong there. I keep going wrong." There. I say, "Okay, give yourself time, and just do that bit where you're where you're going wrong, just to make it right." So don't say, "I'm going wrong." It's what do you want? What do you want? So you're creating an energy of what you want, not what you don't want. So trying to change people's way of thinking. And they're speaking about what they want. I don't want to fall off point. I don't want to do that. That that's cut.
0: <laughs> it, it's interesting. It, like it almost, it's almost almost like optimism isn't fashionable anymore. It's almost like to say that I want something mm. or to have a, have a dream that is really big and outlandish is almost not socially accepted. I, I've often come up against this. Is there's an air of modesty that surrounds all the time they're play, well, yeah. playing down how good they are
2: mm.
0: can off, can be detrimental
1: well that's 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 t- slightly different mm. how good they are but what it's what they oh, really feel sorry yes, yes it's what do they want mm. what do they want so by going over and over again of what they want in this visualization and in the way they're thinking they can then do that without physically having to go through it over and over again and once they've done it over and over, over and over in, in their visualization, they can then practice it. Um, but they don't practice it with the same mindset as they had before. They're practicing knowing that that's what they're going to do, rather than saying, uh, getting worried about um, going wrong mm. or falling off
0: point or anything like that. Have um, you have you used visualization, Connie, or, or, or without realizing it, maybe? Used it or is it not? I don't think I have, but it's a
2: really interesting. It is. And,
0: and, and the, the, the research that's been done about that was done on piano
1: playing. So they had, I think, a dozen people uh, who don't play the piano, didn't play the piano. Uh, they took half a dozen of them just to do the visualizations of, of, of knowing where the fingers go on the, on the keyboard. So they, they had to go through the process without touching the keyboard. The other six learnt by practicing just a short piece. At the end of, I don't know how many months it was of of, of, that, of those methods, there were independent um, examiners that each listened to, them, not knowing which one had done what.
0: I mean, in sports practice, we know that visualisation is a very common, oh, yeah, you te- common technique. Yeah. You know, golfers, cricket players, yes. people that often take shots. And that's football. what they
1: want, isn't it? Oh, that's yeah. what I want to happen. Yeah, and I mean, That's what I'm trying to convey. If you, to if you, to
0: you were guys. David Beckham, you would pay a million pounds to kick a ball like that, so you better yeah. put in visualise it you know
1: yeah
0: but it but it is a powerful technique and i think for for dancers that listen to this
1: uh, because apparently the brain doesn't doesn't differentiate between what you're doing physically and what you're doing in your
0: head what about what about on the flip side of that what about watching people watching themselves back do you think there's like video analysis is that a useful tool I mean, I know within sport that we analyze our own performances for improvement. Mm. And there's a point at which I felt that when I've used video feedback that it's very useful. But after a long time, it can be almost like I've, I've, I've given myself too many corrections. Well,
1: the, the, then you go into the perfectionist um, point of view, which is, is really de- detrimental. So you, you can only go as, as far as your own ability. And there's a, there's a ceiling to everyone's ability as you probably know you know uh, however many seconds it is to do the 100 meters and then there's a small improvement but it's not that same person it's a different person that can run faster so from a better version a better version version. that's right yes so your own ability does have a ceiling you can improve on certain things um not all dancers are technically perfect but they're brilliant performers so when you're watching something they might not do six pirouettes and a, a triple tour or something like mm. that, but their performance is is different and, and you can enjoy that.
0: And kind of my segue to talking about video analysis really is to then talk about Instagram and oh. talk about <laughs> social, <laughs> social media mm. and where do you see that fitting with, with people's mental health at the moment? You know, we, we're all social media users. Dancers have big followings on social media mm. and anecdotally it can be something that, People scroll down a news feed or scroll down an Instagram feed and get to the bottom of it and feel pretty awful about themselves because they've just watched everybody's best version of themselves. Well, that's
1: where Pisky Ballerina came in. Right. To, to, to not put the best version of themselves, to show that we're all human, that we all make mistakes, uh, fall over, etc. cetera. And, um, you know, there, there should be one day a month where everybody – Individually, decide one day a month where they're not going to look on on social media. Now I use social media as well because I want to uh, advertise my services, and as as you do, mm. you showing advertising your services.
0: And Connie, you've got your Instagram. You've got an Instagram page for your uh, strength and conditioning academy yeah, as well, yeah. haven't you? So we all use it in terms of business Marketing and business, business. business. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I don't have a personal Instagram account.
0: Um, I do, and I go to say I don't use it as anywhere near as much as I used mm. to.
1: But I think there should be one day a month where people would say, okay, I'm not going to go on Instagram because, and and my last, the last article that I just did, uh, where are we now? Sunday. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was was the week that's just gone. Um, That was about comparing. And so that's what people do when they're going on there, they're comparing with themselves. And, and others, you know, I'm not as good as that. So that's the low self-esteem gets built up and built up and built up and they say, oh, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy of, of going into class the next day or whenever. And then the eyes go around the class or rehearsals. We're all unique. We've all got our own
0: unique abilities, whether it's looks, whether it's length
1: of leg, whether
0: it's style, yeah, I think it comes down to like in, in, intrinsic motivators really, doesn't it? You know, what is why are you a dancer? What is it you want to improve on? What can you can control? And as a dancer, you really when you're looking to improve, all you can improve is you all you can work on is what you've got. That's in right. Front of That's you.
1: what I am saying. You, you you do have a limit. You can you can expand on the, in different ways, you can improve the acting side of things, so you can do that. But if your leg is only going to go there and it's painful to go any higher, then it's pointless. Um, you know pushing that someone else can go higher but they're not as good as you doing something else we're all unique and that's what I try and impress on on people. yeah and I
0: think when I've traveled around modern companies these days is that there are lots of different type of dancer certainly I mean my main experience is in ballet there are lots of different types of dancer in this ballet company ballet companies in Germany who I've sat and watched class with not everybody has Four pirouettes, right and left. Not everybody has legs that go by their head on mm. both sides all the time. Oh, well, that
1: overstretching as well. That's another uh, point.
0: That, I mean, you uh, could get me started on that. We'll be here for another day, but
1: well, yeah, I'll just briefly say yeah. that um, hyperextension, uh, hypermobility. I'm sorry, hypermobility has now been proved by I think three different researches that, that I've uh, conferences I've been to that um, can cause anxiety as well because hypermobility is an, does, in, an instability Yeah, because you're, you're unstable and you can't control things. Oh, for so sure, for sure.
0: I, I mean, I think about some of the dancers that I work with on a daily basis and some of them are extremely mobile. They struggle with certain things like pirouettes and stability. Mm. On the flip side, I've got some dancers that really love jumping and when it comes to doing an adage, they get terribly worried about doing that. And yeah, well, that's
1: the same. It's, it's unique, but, you yeah, know, of it, course. if, if they do the, the – you know the the Beten test.
0: Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So, so for the people that don't know, the Baton score uh, is a various anatomical test that you can do to determine your extent of hypermobility. Go on. That's it. But that was it. Okay. I was, was going to, <laughs> no. but but it's, it's true. I mean, uh, certain elements of like high Beighton scores uh, mm-hmm. are linked with like neuromuscular function and uh, the ability to coordinate certain movements, and often. Um, can be a a risk for injury as well in in our, in our circumstances. And I think coming on to how people overcome, I mean, we've talked a lot about the issues surrounding mental health and obviously you take, yeah, you take a, uh, a really um, proactive rather than reactive standpoint. We're going to talk about that just now. So proactive rather than reactive. What I mean by that is in the sense that you would love to, uh, I'm paraphr- kind of paraphrasing, I guess, what something you said or, or read, is that you would love a situation where we could, instead of putting out fires in terms of mental health, is that we could help people accomplish good mental health without the, some of the adversity that we see such as anxiety and and leading towards depression and things like that. We'd like to not even get to that point before we have to bring people back. We would like more dancers to be able to have services that are provided to them so that they could never be entangled in mental health issues. Mm.
1: So you get some establishments that um, will will not have any form of um, mental health therapy on site, they will refer people to counsellors. Some establishments with enough money will actually pay for, say, six sessions for that. So they'll either, they'll either have... Um, White Lodge has a counsellor, and I think they're allowed six sessions, something like that. So they're paying, paying the counsellor on-site um, and at the upper school as well at Covent Garden. So they've got therapists there. In exactly the same way as they got that incredible suite for physical therapy, um, and that—that's the reactive. But the proactive is actually to get people to talk about their situations before it gets too bad. So oh, I'm really—I'm really, work, gl- I'm really glad to say that you're
0: going to be coming in to do a workshop for us. Like that is definitely something that's going to happen this this side of summer, mm. hopefully for us. Um, all things being equal, with your schedule as well, mm. and and I think that is going to be the way forward. And you've talked a little bit about your your self care workshop, but that's just one stepping stone, isn't it? Do you do you have a, a bigger vision than that in terms of what schools can or even companies I do, can provide? I do.
1: So what that that is what is needed perhaps each term. So you've got three years here.
0: We've got three years you've here. Got three We've years. got some postgraduates yeah. as well. Okay,
1: so you've got three years. Each of those years is going to have different issues. So, for instance, if there's a college that has borders, you're going to get students leaving home. So they're going to have to have to deal with that as well as the new the new environment. Ninety
0: percent of our students live away from home. I would say So they do. do they? Yeah, some. Okay, in. so
1: there's that first year. There's more settled in in the second year. Um, so they, they they seem to be more settled in that in that way, but, but there's still that need of knowing. What's going on in their head? What's going on with the connection between uh, their head and their body? Um, and then the last year, they're going out into the big wide world. Mm. So they're prepared physically um, due to the classes, etc. So they'd be able to perform. But the big wide world is harsh out there. Are they mentally prepared for it and emotionally prepared? Not
0: just Do you have prepared. benchmarks whereby you know where the people are prepared? Yes, yeah, what,
1: what they say, how they say things, okay. uh, how much are they covering up? Mm. So, um, patient just this week was telling me horrendous things, but with a big smile on her face. So that's her mask. So you can, I can recognise when someone uh, is is hiding something, uh, whether there's no eye contact, uh, whether there's a smile. Mm. And you can see that the eyes aren't smiling, and so, and the body language—you pick up the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, as I think, coaching, and you're you're a teacher as well, aren't you, Connie? And mm-hmm. you you've become aware of people's traits. I mean, I get to know people that I work with extremely well. I'm pleased to say that most people are quite confident in the way they speak to me, um, but also everybody. You can expect everybody to hide something, and being prepared for auditioning. Certainly, I, I, a lot of people I come into contact are dance students, so they are thinking about: Am I ready for a job physically? Am I ready ready for this world of potential rejection before I get a job? Because that's something that certainly people have to overcome. I'm, mm. I, I'm sure you've spoken with people like that before mm. and for every yes there's probably going to be 20 no's
1: it's it's all to do with the transition I mean this is a sort of a buzzword at the, at the moment the transition so you've got transition from home to the outside world and then you've got uh, transition to to a full-time school or college and the transition into the big wide world and then Uh, there's going to be an end of a career. So there's a transition, whether it's forced end or whether it's uh, I've had enough with this now. I'm going to go and do something else. Um, So we are constantly in in transition. And if that individual is not confident enough and hasn't had a stable enough environment at home, they're not going to be able to deal with situations.
0: Like so if you've got potentially let's i'm going to make up a scenario for the sake of it because i think i think it's a topic that comes up greatly with me i mean it's, my, it's different different in dance sport because you've said to me connie that the it's a competitive scene it's privately funded you're not necessarily going to make a career in performing arts out of dance sport unless you go into something that's very niche like strictly come dancing or you get on telling for some reason um so there's an, an inevitable segue out of dance sport and is it that can be different points for different people some people carry it on part-time I'm guessing as a hobby or yeah. a, <clears throat> side to work but is that is that a reality that you, you dance sport faces and latina ballroom faces
2: uh to Don't, a certain extent yes I mean a lot of people if they decide to continue their dancing will go into teaching and they'll take the qualifications to go professional and
0: do you, do you place a lot of value on those those teaching qualifications uh
2: within certain circles so the, the, there's the istd and that's that's one circle and then you've got the natd which is another circle for, for
0: dance sport, this for is, sport okay yeah but in te- um, teaching qualifications as a whole is that a really good option do you think it is,
2: it is a good option yes yeah, so, yeah i mean once you've got your qualifications you're you're recognized because
0: your your ultimate goal is obviously to have a dance school and, yes. and that's kind of your big big step yeah. and, and integrate strength and conditioning and no doubt people make sure people's mental health is well looked yeah, after as yeah. well. Um but diversifying away from what was previously your vocation into another uh, one is
1: Yeah. You say vocation, but um, we both started early in life. It's our life.
0: Yeah. You know? Okay. And and that's that that's
1: that's the difficulty, you know, when you when you trained as an engineer, but you're then you're gonna become something different, that's not your life. Your life back there was something totally different. It was yeah. It was a school child, but from the early – three? Four. Four. Yeah, and so six for Four you. and six for me. That's our life. I, I lost my childhood. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, in part of my training to be a psychotherapist, I had to undergo four years of weekly therapy. Um, and that's really – you know, to clear ourselves out, to understand ourselves more um, – and it's helpful to know what it's like in the patient's chair as well.
0: Of course, yes.
1: Um, clinical psychologists don't need to do that, and I think counselling psychologists do one year. A counsellor only has to do one year. Psychiatrists don't have to do therapy. So there's 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 a total difference of, of empathy and understanding of going through that. And I've lost what I was going with. What did I say before?
0: Well, I mean, we were we were talking about it's your life and the fact That's that That's right. It it's a life.
1: So so we're not just changing a job.
0: we are changing a whole life yeah that's a really really interesting topic and obviously that's uh, important information job just for me to understand with my my clients but also for everybody whether you've got uh, whether you're a parent listening to this with a young son or daughter that's just starting out dancing or whether you've got a son or daughter at vocational school or whether you've got whether you're a dancer yourself later on in your career, thinking what am I going to do next? Like this is this is huge. This mm. is you're you will always be a dancer. That I think that's important to know is, and that those dance characteristics and skill set that you have, um, and those transferable skills that we talked about in the beginning, will stick with you no matter what you're going to mm. you're going into. I think that's perfect to say. You wanted to also touch on um, neurodiversity, mm. and that's a bit of a, a, a little bit of a leap from our current topic conversation but in in the interest of of what that is please can you um give a definition to our listeners as to, to what that is neurodiversity
1: okay it's it's um a different way of talking about adhd autism dyspraxia and dyslexia so it's, it's grouped together so it's 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 diverse rather than a disorder so it, um so the the chain trying to change away from autism ADHD as, as disorders. Now, obviously, they are disorders when they go to extremes and an individual is unable to live uh, a satisfactory life. But, and this is some of the research that we're going to be doing up in Edinburgh, mm. uh, in, in addition to the injury one. Um, I have found that I am scoring quite high on ADHD and autism uh, on, on the spectrum. And my feeling is that the way, especially ballet training, the way that we train, is very black and white, so it exacerbates the traits. We're all on spectrum to a certain level, on, on all of these mm. things. Now, the traits are very positive, because uh, not the attention deficits so much, but the hyperactivity. that drives us. So it's, it's the wiring in the brain. It drives us. The black and white thinking is, is helpful for ballet because if you're not right you're wrong but it's the constant um being told that you're not wrong and there's a lot of control needed there
0: Mm.
1: within that because you're being told you're wrong i've got to get this right i've got so perfectionist comes in perfectionism comes in and that's part of the yeah i think when you dance
0: there's this element of dancing to music and you've got to be on the beat or yes. You've got to be on the music, and that, oh, yeah. that, that is quite black and white, isn't it, it, in, is. it in its own nature? Whether mm. you talk about it or not, like mm. if you're da- you're either dancing on the music or you're dancing off the music, and that can itself for somebody with um, learning difficulties, dys this dys- dys, um, dyspraxia, somebody with poor motor skills, natural as as a as a result of their their genetics, can be terribly frustrating mm. and ultimately lead to some adverse mental health condition as well Well, you know some serious frustration because of picking up choreography yes or and it and that's to talk about it lightly obviously i know Mm -hmm. that but i'm just trying to i'm seeing clearly the segue of the natural progression between these categories of neurodiversity and mental health as well
1: that's right yeah because if if, you know having one, one of the things is perfectionism so if you're not Doing what you want to do, then the anxiety comes in, or, or as it builds up, then depression comes in because you're not where you, where you want to be. Um, OCD comes into that as well. So you were mentioning uh, about genes. So genes is part of it. Uh, the environment in which you grew up. Um, not only that, but you know what you're eating, what you're breathing in, etc. Plus that early childhood of ballet. Mm. I think. Um, it may not affect so much um, contemporary dance, etc. If if a person starts in their teams, mm. um, but with with uh, your type of dancing, Connie, um, that is quite a perfectionism, isn't it mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, absolutely. All
2: the technique comes into that. Yeah. Have you
1: found that there's a lot of black and white thinking there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, also that you look at um, gymnastics. The so kids start young.
0: Um, I mean, we. <clears throat> I'm very lucky to work in a bit of gymnastics as well. Mm. My first experience with gymnastics was, by the way, this is the age that people leave gymnastics. This is our burnout age.
2: Mm.
0: And it was something in the early teens. Mm. <laughs> um, dancing is it's hugely different. I feel like dancing's got it good because we don't progress young people too quickly. If you go through the syllab- syllabus, <clears throat> excuse me, then it's nice to see that what an eight-year-old gymnast can do and what an eight-year-old dancer can do. are have two very different things. The dancer is nowhere as physically capable as the eight-year-old, but there's longevity in that Mm. because they've got a whole potential career to think about in dance and you want people to still be dancing when they're 19, 20 and 30 and so on. Gymnasts are kind of done at 16. Mm.
1: And this is where the burnout occurs for ballet competitions.
0: Um, People are done with it. By the time they get to the late teens, they're done with competitions.
1: That's right. And I I never did a competition.
0: And you had a wonderful career.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, not that it's, I mean, I'm an example, but um, I think it's come across from America, these competitions, um, and, and that's, you know, you have to have a result. Uh, if you take, for instance, um, what they call soccer, what we call football, they didn't like a draw when, when soccer, football started. They had to have a winner and a loser, and, and that's the sort of thing in, in the competitions, There's a winner and a loser. in in the competition in
0: a subjective discipline
1: yeah where where you get scored rather than what's (coughs) the performance like and and then doing those competitions they're tricks and this is what we we see on instagram on social media tricks ballet is not tricks ballet is a performance i don't think i don't think
0: dance is tricks in general i i I think we're (coughs) personal opinion we're running out of choreography we're running out of steps and you're we talked about Strictly in our brief chat yesterday, didn't yeah. we, Connie? Yeah? And how and not because Strictly is not entertaining, not because I don't enjoy. It, I like watching it, but it, a lot of it is is quite commercial, yeah, and not raw ballroom. and it's yeah, not raw... so what
2: you would necessarily see, on, or isn't what you would see on the competitive circuit. I mean, if you did any lifts on the competitive circuit, the disqualified. Ladies' feet cannot leave the ground. Um. With all of her weight on her partner, so they can leave the ground if she's doing that herself. But if she's got assisted with that, you're disqualified. And you can't leave
0: it. So, you know, we're heavily now, you know, Instagram is full of mm. those those tricks and, and, and things like that. And, you know, it's not, it could be more creative than that. You know, the, the choreography in its rawest sense, as in terms of dance steps, is very much uh, a skill <laughs> that is difficult to do, you know. Mm. The, uh, choreography can be is developed over a multitude of times. It isn't just gymnastics. And even when I speak to gymnastics people and they watch dancers do gymnastics, they're like, oh no, like, they're using gym- poor gymnastics in dance and it's not the be all and end all. Mm. Um, coming back to your neurodiv- neurodiversity, I think it's great that we've got a, um, a a good way to talk about a multitude of difficulties that people can have in a learning environment. And you were saying about the black and white nature of dance and dance training. What can teachers do to diversify their techniques for coaching more, so that they, if they've got twenty people in the room, that are twenty different people in the room? get one point across to all those 20 people because that is really difficult isn't it you've got all these individuals that learn in these individual ways and the teacher's going i've got to accommodate for all of these people it is a tricky scenario isn't it it? it? yes and
1: i think i think they a good teacher would recognize the difference three is there three different learning styles isn't there
0: <clears throat> there's as many as you want there to be these days but yeah, yeah essentially I think yes I, I think
1: um that with dancers it's looking and doing so you look at the teacher and then you practice yourself i mean they do with the hands do the hands do yeah. the hands and they know that their hands are connected to their feet and that's what they're going to do
0: form of visualization that's right yeah they're doing it without even realizing
1: that's right yeah
0: and and you know, so, so but
1: there are some people that won't do that that their brain works differently.
0: Yeah, I think I think I've seen I do see people stood on the side of like rehearsals and stuff, and they're just watching. Mm. And sometimes they're the, sometimes some of the people that actually need to get up and they need to do it mm. if they're really going to get that right. Some, and then there are other people that would benefit from just stopping for a second and watching mm. what's going on. You know, th- there are ways in which to learn. And I think teachers having an awareness from, of how people learn.
1: But they can do it in the three ways and say, "Okay, I want, I want, glissade sans glissade sans without doing anything." And so they're telling them that's the first bit, and they say, "Okay, let's practice it." So they then do the practice. Let's do it with music mm. as marking, and then you can do it full out. So there are different ways of using each of the ways of training. Mm.
0: I think, and and you know, rather than just sitting on a chair and pointing, like that, yes. that's, we don't want to go there. No, <laughs> Well, I mean, I think we're probably going to run out of time there, okay. there, Terry. And what I envisage, and Connie, obviously, thank you so much for jumping in on this. I think your your input in terms of what it's flagged up for you has been really interesting and almost coincidental and weird, but um, valuable nonetheless. But I think Terry, we're going to need a part two at some point down the line.
1: Well, if if you get responses from from this. And they write the responses down. Then we. Then well, go. let's ask. A, we'll
0: ask you what questions the listeners. Then, what more yeah. would you like to know from Terry? Terry's obviously given us a huge insight into his knowledge base and also his experience. Um, what would you like us to talk about? We're shooting in the dark a little bit here on our first episode, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, there, it, it, this will have struck some chords in people's brains. Um, hopefully, given people the confidence to talk about what they're feeling. Um, I'll leave a link where people can get in touch with you. And if people want to get in touch with you via me, that's okay right. too. Um and you know, I will be certainly referring people to your services thank um you. that warrant it I'm more than more right. often than not. So thank you so much for coming on our first episode, Terry. You've been a fantastic guest. Thank um you. Connie, thank you so much for jumping on this as well. It's been it's been really, really important that having an and interesting having somebody here that's going through or gone through a process and also um as part of your development in terms of your master's degree as well so it's been great so thanks very much hope you enjoyed the first episode saying bye